Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you today to start a new series. It's one about the heroes that we see in Scripture. It's going to point us to every story having a hero. Uh, But for us to understand that, we need to take a step back into our own lives. And I want to ask a few questions for you to kind of ponder. I want to ask you this first one real generally. If you could think back to growing up days, right? For some of us, that's a lot further back than others. But uh, think back to your favorite stories or movies and just think about who the hero was that you kind of wanted to be in those younger years. Uh, For me, it was probably Luke Skywalker. I don't know about the rest of you, but that was kind of my generation. I know it's come back in now with new heroes in that storyline, but uh, that was kind of who I wanted to be, even though sometimes we all kind of liked the bad guys, right? Come on, I'm not the only one, right? Uh, But we didn't stay there for long, right? We found other heroes, heroes in sports. We found heroes uh, in in our lives. Maybe it was a father figure. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was an older person in your life that was close to your age. I I don't know who your hero was, but I know one thing, that almost always when we get to meet those heroes or we get to see those heroes long enough, they eventually fall. They eventually fail us in some way. They never live up to the magnanimity that we have in our mind about who they should be, right? I remember the one time uh, I was going to a conference where I was listening to some guys who preach excellently that I listen to regularly that are great uh, communicators. They are great expositors of the word. And I had in my mind, you know, like you do, when you listen to them on podcasts long enough, you think you kind of know this person. You feel like you kind of get them. You understand who they are. And I made the tragic mistake of thinking I kind of knew them more than I should. Have you ever done that before? Maybe you haven't. I've done that several times. But at this conference, I walked up to speak to one of these guys, and I kind of made a quick quip or joke with them real fast that I thought would be funny to them, knowing their humor. I've listened to them for hours on podcasting, and it just flew right by them, (laughs) and I realized how much of an idiot I looked like in the moment. You ever been there? And I thought, this person would be super gracious, and they were so caught up, and I'm catching them before they preach, right? So I caught them in a bad spot, and I just thought, oh, they'll get over that real quick, and he just kind of looked at me like, are you serious? Like, that was a stupid statement, you know? He didn't say it, but that's how I read that face look. You know, you've seen those Maybe you haven't. I've seen them a lot. But that's, that's something that reminded me of this today as I was thinking through heroes. These guys aren't heroes in the same way that Luke was back in the day, right, for me. But they're still heroes in that they live out a lifestyle that we want to be like. And I think sometimes we can take people, people in the Bible and we can find pe- people or personas in the Bible and we can say, that person is someone we should model our lives after. And I think I want to take a series with you guys of time to go through several stories of the Old Testament. We have these giant heroes. And if we're not careful, what we've done is we've elevated these guys to be, uh, and gals, to be some of the superheroes when really they're just people like us. In fact, most everybody in the scriptures, everybody I can find just about except for Jesus, had some kind of issues or problems. Nobody's really the hero that they are, are kind of held up to be. And whether you knew this first one, Noah, or from your early days with felt boards, moving them along, or whether you've just heard the story or seen the movies, however you've seen Noah, I think that I want to take us down the path today to look at Noah and the flood and, and Noah's life in that moment, and I want us to see more of a true picture of what this is really about. I think that we've taken these ideas from how we've learned them as a kid. Maybe we were taught wrongly. Maybe we weren't, but we just caught different things, and we fashioned an idea about these stories and therefore an idea about God that isn't necessarily true. And so we need to write ourselves into a right understanding of Scripture so we can rightly understand who God is, and therefore we can rightly worship Him. 
This is really important for us. Because if we worship a God that's not the true God of the Scriptures, one that has things made up in our minds that aren't right with the Bible, then we're worshiping a false God. And we are no different than those we talk about poorly from the Scriptures. So I want to take a moment. I'm not going to read the whole story. I kind of want to tell you the story. But I want to make sure that we understand one more truth before we go on. The reason we like heroes, the reason we all want a hero is because I think deep down inside, we kind of all want to be the hero. We all do things because we want people to look at us like we've done something well or just because we want to serve someone so well that we can step in and save them. And I think today we're going to see that really there's no way we can do that in every given situation and not even in most situations. The only true hero is not really ever going to be us. And that can be a little depressing until we see it in context. So let me take us forward from here. Let's look together, if you would, in the book of Genesis, chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 5. And I'm not going to read this whole story. You'll thank me later when you see how long it is, if you don't remember. And uh, we're going to start in verse 5. I'm going to read a section and talk about it, read some more and talk about it. And I'm going to relate it to us. Let me remind you, though, as you're getting there to Genesis 6, that this is not really about us, but it is for us, Right? And so let's not put ourselves too much into the mix, but we can definitely gain some understandings about self by reading these scriptures and by understanding the context of the story. So let's look together. Genesis 6, 5 through 9. Now, just a reminder, this is after Adam and Eve, right after the fall, and we're coming into a part of the story of scripture where there's just increasing sinfulness and corruption amongst the whole earth. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I want to read that again. Listen closely to what he says in that last bit about the thoughts of the heart. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let me pause there and just say this. Anytime you see the word but in scripture, it's really good for us. Just about always, right? He's about to blot everything out and he looks down in verse 80, we're told, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I want to make sure we understand something really clear before we go any further. That When it says Noah was a righteous man, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. It's the key to understanding that is at the very next phrase when he says that he was a righteous man. It says Noah walked with God. He was a man who called out to God. He was a man who called upon him when nobody else was doing it. He was a man who wanted to serve and be obedient to him. But we're going to see at the end of the story even that Noah was not a righteous man fully in sinless perfection. But he was declared righteous here because of his obedience and pursuit of God. And the only one who was doing it, it seems. One of the things I want you to understand as we look in these verses 5 through 9, when it says that in verse 5, we don't want it to apply to us, but it does. Look back with me in verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We don't want to be those folks. 
We think, well, I don't have all these evil thoughts. I don't have all these uh, ideas in my head and all these desires that are evil. I, I think of good things. I want to do good things for people. We have to understand that in the context of the biblical framework, to be evil means to miss the mark. To be sinful means to not hit the goal. And the goal is that everything we do would be to the glory of God. Romans 3 tells us that very plainly when Paul says that, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are sinful and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that we are made to reflect the image and greatness of God. We are made to be in his perfect image and that we are made to reflect that glory back to him and to the world around us in a way that would not mar or bring it down a little bit. That it must be in perfect connection with that glory being shown upon us. And yet we miss that mark daily. That if our thoughts are not redeemed and are not for his glory, that they are sinful. So you can do good things and not be a person that is righteous. You can do things that are for other people that are selfless and then not be done for the glory of God and therefore it is sin still. That's the crazy part about sin. We've kind of relegated it to doing wrong things. But really it's about not doing things ultimately for the full glory of God. So doing the right things for the right reasons all the time. That would be sinless perfection. And only Jesus himself, the only man who's ever done that, is the only one that can claim it. And so I want us to understand something. If you've got notes, this will be your number one. From what we see here in Noah, those generations before, we're going to see at the very end of the story in a few minutes, it's the same thing even after the flood. He didn't eradicate sin. The intentions of all of our hearts the desires of our hearts, apart from the work of Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we are sinful to our core. We are sinful to our core. And you've heard me talk about this every week so far. And that's because I think for most of us, including myself, we have to have that driven on us regularly because until we understand that truth, we don't really see the value and the worth and the supremacy of Christ. So we have to understand that we are sinful to the core. Let me give you a few verses to back that up. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So he's saying, blessed is that one whom the Lord counts under that toward. That's what he's doing here for Noah, right? He's calling him righteous because he's not counting that sin against him. He's forgiving him. If you go on down in Psalm 32 and hit verses 10 and 11, you see this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. There's that word, right? He's calling someone righteous who has had to be forgiven. So again, the righteousness comes from God's declaration because of his love for that person who is therefore being obedient to him, not because of the perfection. He says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Hebrews 11:7 brings up Noah again. If you flipped over there, you don't have to flip now. I'll just write it down. Hebrews 11:7. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we have this idea in a lot of our heads, not everybody maybe, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I had this idea in my head until I understood differently that these guys in the Old Testament that were living, quote, righteous lives, that they must have been kind of sinless. Otherwise, they would have gone to hell because they didn't have Christ. But even they are living by faith. And it's, they're declared righteous by faith. Not be, they're not declared righteous because they're perfect. They're declared righteous because they trust in the promise of the Lord. 
They're to trust in what he can do and who he is and what he's already done. That's where they're declared righteous, just like him. So we and ourselves can't be righteous, but we can be declared righteous even though we are sinful to the core, simply because of the faith given to us by God, provided for us in Christ. We understand that, though. We are sinful to the core, and it changes everything for us. We cannot trust ourselves. The Psalms also say that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah says it. Who can know it? That we are all sinful and deserve the wrath of God. Psalm 5.5 indicates that. We need the grace and mercy of God continually. None of us walks in righteousness in and of ourselves. We are sinful to the core. And even though Noah is called righteous, he's still a sinner. And all those around him are still sinners. But he found favor in God's sight. That's where we come up. Genesis 6, 17 and 18. Look at what's coming because of it. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but, there's that but again, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So he's going to destroy everything that's breathing. Every single thing is going to be destroyed because of sin. That is the severity of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness is not some trite thing we need to dismiss. We need to take it in and feel the weight of that so that we can feel the release and blessing of having Christ. And here we see that that is exactly why all this destruction comes. He's created everything. Everything has fallen into sin, and therefore he's going to destroy everything because of that. Go on and check out how it goes down. Genesis 7, 11 through 16. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Even in this story alone, the escape out of the flood cannot be done alone by Noah. He he follows the, the order of what to do and how to build the ark. He loads everybody up in there. He gets inside, and then God comes and shuts the door so that no one can be drowned inside the ark, that nothing would die that is inside the ark. Here we see the actual decreation of what God created in the beginning. If you remember the text, I won't go back and read it, but God, there was a formless kind of void, and there was, the earth was surrounded by water. It was filled up with water, and God began to, to, to take the waters and make them uh, subside and go away, and ground started to appear below the waters. And now we see the exact opposite happening. Where rains are coming, the fountains are bursting forth, and now the whole earth is filling up just the way it was and going back into utter chaos because of sin. That's how serious sin is and what it impacts. Everything is impacted by it. And it deserves something more than a light wrap on the wrist. Look at Genesis 7, 20 through 24. You'll see the results of this. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits. And all flesh died and moved on the earth, 
that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I can't remember the name of the man that, I, that, that did the artwork, but there's a man who did some artwork, and it's mostly in black and white. And uh, it's, it's artwork that was done that kind of shows the flood in various stages in the story of the flood. And it was very capturing to me to see these pictures because we kind of think about this like a kid's story, don't we? We, we kind of think about it as far as you know, Noah gets in the ark and all the animals come up and all of them go in and we're all happy because they're going to escape the flood and then the waters come and the boat floats and it goes around for a while and the bird goes out and it comes back and we keep waiting for the bird to find the little twig, right, and it comes back and eventually the bird stays away. We know it's okay. Then the ground dries. They get out. Oh, happiness again. But the artwork that I saw that helped bring this to, to kind of a deeper sense for me it showed what happens in real life in this story is that everything that's out there is probably scrambling to get to high ground. All the people, all the animals, everybody's trying to get to the top of the mountains, trying to get to the top of the water keeps going up and they keep trying to go up. And the pictures show a family with like three or four kids and the parents are in the water and they're trying to hold up one of their babies who's falling in while the waves are crashing against this one top of a mountain, this Alps kind of top of a mountain. And there's a tiger sitting up there, not doing anything because it must be freaked out as well. And the parents are trying to keep their kids up on top. I mean, this is the devastation and the horribleness that would have gone on. And we like to think about things that, well, God would never do that to people now. God would never. We as sinners who have rebelled against the glorious grace of God being given to us in his love, he created us out of nothing because he loves us. We as sinners deserve that kind of destruction. That's the severity of it. We as those who have not ever, ever understood the true nature we were created for, we deserve that kind of destruction. And it's horrible. It's, it's a microcosm of what hell will be like for all eternity. It, it is something that we should be in fear of. It's something we should be under, like, overwhelmed by, and we should be under the, the weight of that any time that we recognize our sinfulness. The beautiful thing is the story doesn't stop there. But we need to understand this is not a children's story. This is not something we whisk away into the, to the, the nice children's Bibles and let them stay there for ourselves. We need to understand the severity of the sinfulness that we ourselves live in. We deserve destruction, just like all the people there, just like Noah, but Noah found favor. Hebrews 10, 28 through 31 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It said anybody that is not living according to the law that sets it aside, if they commit a transgression against the law in the Old Testament with two or three witnesses coming against them, the Ten Commandments, they would be killed for that. He goes on, he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
But this is a picture now, not just of those who don't know Christ. He's trying to show like how much destruction do we deserve simply because we understand and we profess faith in Christ, and yet we trample over the blood covenant sacrifice of Christ in our actions by not caring about our sinfulness, by going ahead and committing the sins anyway. We deserve destruction in an utmost way that goes on forever. We all deserve that. And I'm harping on it and harping on it because this is the picture we see in the book. This is the picture we see with Noah. Everybody died. Everybody were destroyed. Everything was wiped away. That's how serious this is. We all deserve it. But there's a turning point. Look, Genesis 8. Another word starts with but. Another phrase starts with but. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered. But God remembered Noah. Thank you, Lord, that he doesn't forget those whom he has called out. Thank you that he doesn't forget us, those that he has drawn into relationship with him. But God remembered Noah. And let me tell you right now, no matter what kind of sin you've been involved in, no matter what kind of living and lifestyle and hiding that you are trying to cover up when you come to gather with us, no matter what things you continue to do that you continue to fail in, God knows about it, and he is wanting to remind you today that he remembers you just the way he remembered Noah. You are not beyond saving if the Lord deems it worthy to save you in his own right. Not because of your ability, not because of what you bring to the table, not because of your perfection, but because of his glorious perfection and overflowing love. We are not beyond the reach. Look what he says in, eight, in Genesis eight fifteen through 17. Then God said to Noah, this is after everything subsided, Everything is is quieted down. He says to him in verse 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be, be, listen to this, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Do you remember that language? When he created, he told Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. So he decreated, and now he's recreating in this sense, right? He goes on in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 1. He takes it further. He says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Just to make sure we don't mistake this, right? That doesn't mean he took out a couple species. Okay? There actually were more animals that were of the clean variety. He deemed clean. There were seven pairs. And so he took some of those clean animals, and, and, and he makes an altar, and he took those, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Look at verse 21, chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is going to sound weird in a second, not that that does it already a little bit to us, right? It's going to get even more so. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now we stop there and go, thank you, right? That's what the whole rainbow is about. What the rainbow signifies is God's covenant promise to never flood the earth again, right? You've heard that. You know that from the story as a kid. Let's read that verse again and continue on and see the different kind of weird part to us. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That doesn't jive in our logic. I'm going to read it again. When we get to the foreword, that means here's the reason why I won't do this. What it should say, the reason. Check it out again. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, 
The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even after the flood and everybody's gone, and he only has his chosen people, we see that even then he says, I should destroy the ground, basically, but for the intention of man's heart, read it again, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Everybody then and everybody on, the intention of our hearts, apart from the grace of Christ, is evil from our youth. He says, I'll never do it again. And that comes on the heels of a pleasing aroma of pure sacrifice. He takes the perfect clean animals and he sacrifices them. And then God smells the aroma of that and says, okay, a perfect sacrifice is now drawn me back in to say, look, I know that you're going to keep doing this. I know you're going to keep being sinners. I know you're going to keep deserving destruction, but I'm not going to do it like that again. I'm not going to do it like that again. You see, God gives grace and mercy through sacrifice. He gives grace and mercy through sacrifice. That's your next point. He gives grace and mercy through sacrifice. And this is hard for us because we want to take all that in and we want to say, okay, so what do I have to do? What do I have to sacrifice? Well, Noah sacrificed some animals. Is that enough? Is that going to be enough for us? What do I have to do in order to make enough sacrifices? Well, let me explain it by kind of walking through a biblical theological understanding of how this works, right? Noah is actually another Adam. Noah is actually another Adam, right? We've already seen it. There was a creation in the fall, then there was a recreation after the decreation happened, after the flood. There's a recreation in a sense, and the first man, Noah, chosen by God, comes out, and immediately, though, we see that he is the next Adam in a sense. It's like this type of Adam. The problem is that Noah falls immediately into sin again. I'm going to read on Genesis 9, 20 through 23. Noah began, this is after he's come down, everybody's off the ark, everybody's kind of getting back to normal. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So we see immediately that Noah begins to fall into sinful actions again. Not because he had a vineyard, not because he drank a little wine, but because he got so drunk he passed out naked in front of everybody. Right? Just extreme sinfulness in this way. Immediately after it happens. Recreation happens, but this new Adam fails and he falls into sin immediately, right? So therefore we have to see he can't just be the greater Adam, and thankfully he's not, that actually Jesus is the greater Adam. You remember this from Romans? I'm going to read a text from Romans real quick. It's a little long. If you want to turn to this one, you can. Romans 5, Romans 5, starting in verse 12 through verse 19. Now, Romans is very hard to understand for me sometimes. I have to take some time and kind of digest and digest and digest and pray through it to make sure I don't miss anything in there as I'm reading. So this is your homework. Every week you get a little homework, right? Right? And you're going to go home and do it, right? Right. So begrudgingly, I heard some rights, so we're going to keep going. Romans 5, 12 through 19. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, in other words, through Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those 
whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, I'm an Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So if we're all sinners because of Adam, we can all have the grace and mercy of Christ even more so, is what he's saying. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross makes you righteous. If it's extended to you and you believe in that truth, you're declared righteous, just like Noah was. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus is the greater Adam. He's the one that's fixing all the problems. And although Noah looks like the hero in some ways here, the ultimate hero is not Noah. The ultimate hero is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Noah through his baptism of death on the cross. Jesus is the greater Noah through his baptism of death on the cross. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says, But when the Christ had, sought, had offered for all, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're declared righteous because of Christ. Noah brought them through the flood and Noah fell immediately and could not bring perfection into the world. But Jesus Christ himself, who lived perfectly the life we can never live, he died the death that we deserve under the waters of judgment, under the, under the Father's judgment on him in our place, he stood condemned. And that we therefore in him are carried through like Noah inside the ark. He is our ark. He is our greater ark, the one who brings us through the floods of judgment so that we can come out on the other side, cleansed from our sin, and brought into the family of God. He is the greater Noah. There is none greater than him, and he alone can bring us through the true judgment that we will face apart from him. And he did so on the cross in his death. This is why, this is why we do baptism the way we do it. This is why we do it this way. We believe that the baptism means a profession of faith as we are united with Christ as a public profession. And the reason we do that is because we are saying that in Christ, we too have died through him and his death on the cross, and we go under the water, and then we are raised up in newness of life like Christ. Okay? And so because of being buried in his death and raised up through that way, that's a picture through water that points back to this same thing. It, this is a type of that that we are carried through the floodwaters of destruction because of what Jesus has done for us, and he alone carries us through. God shuts us up in Christ, and then he carries us through that what we should endure. All glory be to the one who can do it, right? Because we cannot. For Jesus alone is the hero. He is the ultimate hero. Every story has a hero, and it's not Noah, and it's not Adam. It is Jesus Christ. And it just just in the same way in our lives, we are not the heroes. And if we take the glory from him by acting like we are the heroes, then we are living in that sinful, destructive state 
that we have already been redeemed from if we're in Christ. Everything we do, everything we are, should point to the glory of Christ alone, for he alone is the hero. He alone is the hero. I'll say it like Spurgeon did. There was a sacrifice there that makes all the difference. When God looks on sin apart from sacrifice, justice says, smite, smite, curse, destroy. But when there is a sacrifice, God looks on sin with eyes of mercy. And though justice says smite, he says, no, I have smitten my dear son. I have smitten him and will spare the sinner. How can we, how can we ever walk in ways that do not point to the glory of the Christ? And yet even when we do, he knows and he loves us anyway because he's our hero. He's our savior. He's our king who gave his life for us. I beg you, brothers and sisters, may we repent today and turn our lives back to him. May we give our lives back to him because he gave his life under the floodwaters of judgment in our place where he stood condemned so that we could be declared righteous and enjoy him forever. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. But Lord, you alone are worthy of all the glory. Your son Jesus alone deserves all the fame. God, you have made a way. And it's not a wooden ark. It's not through a man who is faulty, but it is through the perfect Savior, Jesus, your Son, who gave his life for us that we might give our lives to you and experience the joy we've always hoped for. Let us not put our hope in other heroes. Let us not put our hope in ourselves as heroes, but let us lean into the ever-loving arms of Christ Jesus who died on the cross for us that we might enjoy you forever. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.